And so we dive in um, to our final week of this series called Little Foxes, and we've just been having a great time um, just sort of going inside our hearts and checking where we are in this process. We've been thinking a lot about gratitude. We talked about, um, we talked about nostalgia the first week and how nostalgia can take us out of the moment and want us to go backward. Um, wondering maybe what God has planned for us was not as great as maybe the slavery that we had when we were in Egypt. And so we started there, and we're going to end in the Exodus, well, the story of the Exodus itself as well. So we started there in Exodus 17. We're going to be in Deuteronomy this week. And we have, um, we've touched on a lot of these things about these enemies of gratitude. Um, Song of Solomon says, catch for us the foxes, the little foxes that ruin the vineyard. And it's my belief that what we're talking about in that moment are things in our relationships, things about us, things that are flaws that sin has gone into and got its little fingers in and said, you know what, these are good things for you to do. We looked at entitlement one week, and um, so we had a we had not a lot of time. I, I ended up going longer on the last series. So we, we're not going to get to things like control. We're not going to get to things like resentment and bitterness. Uh, we're not going to get to anger. Um, those things, look forward to those things. Look forward to being broken down uh, in your resentment and your anger of all the things that keep you from your gratitude. We'll do that another day, all right, when we're, when we're feeling up to it. Um, but I saved, I thought, the one that's the most difficult for me. I saved the, the biggest thing, I think, um, the, the whole linchpin of the argument of an enemy of gratitude. I think this is the one that gets us the most often. I think this is the one that keeps us from our joy and our happiness. I think this is the one that spiders its little fingers out in everything that we do. Let's read first in Deuteronomy 34. This is the end of Moses' life. This is his death. This is where he comes to see his God at the end of his life. And it's just 12 verses. Now, the book of Deuteronomy, it means second law, and it is a, it's, it's all Moses. It's Moses addressing all of the people in the wilderness. And it's a beautiful, beautiful book. It's one of the most important books in the Old Testament because it is Moses the prophet giving his swan song. These are the things that I want you to focus on. These are the things I want you to believe in. This is who your God is. Focus on them and now I'm going to go and die. And that's what he does here in chapter 34. It says this, Then Moses climbed Mount Nebo from the plains of Moab to the top of Pisgah across from Jericho. There the Lord showed him the whole land from Gilead to Dan, all of Nephtali and the territory of Ephraim and Manasseh, all of the land of Judah as far as the Mediterranean Sea, the Negev and the whole region from the valley of Jericho to the city of Palms as far as Zoar. Then the Lord said to him, this is the land I promised on oath to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob when I said, I will give it to your descendants. Now I have let, it, let you see it with your eyes, but you will not cross over into it. And Moses, the servant of the Lord, died there in Moab, as the Lord had said. 
He buried him in Moab and the valley opposite Bet Peor. But to this day, no one knows where the grave is. Moses was 120 years old when he died, yet his eyes were not weak, nor his strength gone. The Israelites grieved for Moses in the plains of Moab 30 days until the time of weeping and mourning was over. Now Joshua, son of Nun, was filled with the spirit of wisdom because Moses had laid his hands on him. So the Israelites listened to him and did what the Lord had commanded Moses. Since then, no prophet has risen in Israel like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face, who did all those signs and wonders the Lord sent him to do in Egypt, to Pharaoh, to all of his officials, and to his whole land. For no one has ever shown the mighty power or performance or performed the awesome deeds that Moses did in the sight of all Israel. The image of the mountaintop, the image of going up on the hill, this is a powerful description of where vision is. This is a powerful idea of where vision is. When Jesus wants to show who he is, he takes a few of his disciples up the mountain in the transfiguration and God comes down and says, this is who we are. And they love the mountaintop experience. This is who I am. Here I am. This is my worth to you. And when Jesus wants to teach the people, where does he go? The side of the mountain. And when Moses wants to receive the law, where does he go? Up the mountain. Going up the mountain is such an important image in the Bible. This is where authority comes from. This is where we see and meet with God. Moses did it literally face to face with God as he passed over him. And he's recognized here in the end of Deuteronomy as being the one that was face to face with God. Now, there's a problem in Moses' life because he's not God, he's man. And he's full of these intricacies, these paradoxes, these things that remind us that God has taken us so far and we have journeyed in his name and yet one little thing can ruin the whole trip. You see, as they were wandering through the desert, they needed more water. And we talked about water in Exodus 17, the very first week of this, but they've come to a different place. And they want water, and Moses says, God, how do I get water? And he says, I want you to speak my name. I want you to call forth water from the rock. And so Moses goes to the rock. And the people are complaining, and he's overwhelmed with them. He's overcome by their needs. And so he does what he did in Exodus 17. He strikes the rock with his staff, and water comes from the rock. And he does it again. He does it twice. And they get the water, and everyone's happy. And Moses has used the same method that he did before. But God did not tell him to strike the rock. He told him to speak to the rock and water would flow from it. And in Moses' arrogance, he thinks that because I have the stick, because I have the power, I can show people 
that I can be the one to give them water. I can be the one to do this for them. Not God. If I give God the credit, I can be replaced. Someone can look over me. My job won't be necessary anymore because it's just God doing these things. And so Moses messes up. In fact, Moses and Aaron in that moment are now banned from the promised land. They wander for 40 years in the desert and Moses leads them and he does a pretty outstanding job, I would say. But God says, no, Moses, you made it about yourself. This was a journey for me, not for you. These are my people, not yours. I handed this to you because I trusted you. And now you can't see the promised land. There is a disappointment in all of our lives when we see those moments. When we've journeyed for so long, when we've gotten so close to where we want to be. And God says, no. No. It's noteworthy in this text that sight seems to be really important. On top of a mountain, you can see a long way. They made a point in the text to say that Moses' eyesight had not abated. He was, at 120, he was still seeing really well. If he had a car, he'd probably try and drive it. He could pass the test. It's dangerous, don't do it. But it's interesting because in the New Testament, sight is downplayed so much. In John 20, 29, Jesus tells Thomas, blessed are those who have not seen and yet have come to believe. 2 Corinthians 5, 7 encourages us to walk by faith and not by sight. And in Hebrews 11, 1 defines faith as the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. And so though Moses is not permitted to enter the land, he is given an extraordinary vision of it. God in his grace and his wisdom has said, Moses, I know you're disappointed. Let's go to the mountain and watch it together. Let's see the fruit of your faith come together in this moment. We can watch together on the mountaintop the people enter the promised land. Starting in the north and sweeping west and south, Moses sees the land that God has given the Israelites. And so standing on the border of that land, Moses sees the beginning of the fulfillment of the promise of God that he made so long ago to the patriarchs of the faith. And as later writer would say, Moses died in faith without having received the promises, but from a distance he saw and greeted them. Hebrews eleven thirteen. Now, so as humans, we're allowed to interpret this moment in two ways. God gives us the freedom to do that. And we can take this moment and feel profound disappointment. We're allowed to do that. that I think that is, again, each week we've looked at these things, and, and I haven't said that these are situations where people would feel like it's bad to complain. Like, they're not 
wrong for complaining. If Moses complained, hey, this isn't fair. I don't get to go into the promised land. I'm disappointed by that. No one would blame him. That's a normal human response to that. Now, the text doesn't say Moses is disappointed, but you'd have to be, wouldn't you? You've come so close. You've gone so far for so long. You've dealt with the people. You've dealt with the leaders. You've dealt with the heat, the toil of the day. And now you can only watch at a distance. We get to be profoundly disappointed that when things show up in our lives that we have waited so long for, that we've prayed and prayed about, they don't come to pass. Or, even worse, we see someone else receive the blessings we thought we were going to get. You see how disappointment can lead to things like resentment and anger and control and bitterness and entitlement. Because when we feel disappointed, when we feel slighted, when we feel like we're getting the worst of the worst, that it just doesn't seem fair anymore. Well, life isn't fair, right? We have to learn that at an early age, that life is not fair. So why should we expect God to be any different? Why shouldn't we expect something different from something that's always been a disappointment to us? I prayed so long about this, God. I thought I was faithful to you in this, God. So one mistake, can I be forgiven? Can I be cleansed? Here's the way we could read it, as a moment of profound grace, as a moment of God does not have to do this. God can strike down Moses there if he wants to at the rock and say, your people will continue without you. We don't need you. They will see the promised land and you will not. Moses has been obedient and has had faith for so long that it must have been such a profound disappointment. But let's change that word. Moses has been obedient and has had faith for so long that it must have been a profound gift to have his hopes and convictions confirmed by what he did see. This vision is not only dependent on Moses, but it's dependent on God. God is the subject. Moses was caused to see. God shows Moses. And though we may not, though we may need to open our own eyes and look for what God is doing and where God is, we also mean, may need to ask God to show us, to reveal to us where he is at work. We are not in the mountaintop. We are on in the valley still. When we feel this disappointment, when we feel that joy and that contentment draining from us, we might be in the valley still. God might be calling us to some place to say, look at how faithful you have been, but look at how much more faithful I have been. And let me open your eyes to that. No, 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 that can't be, that can't be. Because God said that 
there would be a blessing through this. God said that something big would happen through this. I have to be there for that. I have to see that. I have to know it. It probably was not possible for Moses to see the full extent of the land from the point where he was. But it was necessary to see that. Moses had walked with God for several decades, and he knew that God would keep his word to give Israel the full land. Though God had not told him that, he himself would enter the land. However, the faithful God lets him see enough of the land, a significant, vast extent to enable him, in a sense, to experience the whole. Here's a question I never thought about, though. What if Moses had disobeyed? What if God called him up on that mountain to bless him, and Moses just said, no, I'm not going to do it? What if he said, I'm not going to follow you up that mountain. I demand from you, God. I demand to be let into the promised land. What if Moses just flat out refuses? And I think we as humans, as Christians in this world, at this time, in this culture, I think we would do something like that. I think we would put up a big fight if a personal request hadn't been answered. I think we feel such utter disappointment by that. I think that we feel that God owes us something because we've given so much to God. He ought to just let us in. If Moses had done this, though, he would have missed the glorious vision that the faithful who hope in God receive. Because you see, for the faithful, life always has meaning, whether or not your requests have been granted. During deep frustration, all they see is glory through the eyes of hope, and they have joy and peace. The disbelievers, those that don't follow God, they don't know this joy and peace. By refusing to believe, they forfeit the experience of abounding in hope. Life becomes dreary because they focus on what they do not have, rather on what they already have through the Holy Spirit and what they will have in glory. Moses' failure reminds me of something else, though. It reminds me that God's mission is bigger than one person. No matter how significant that person might be in the moment, no matter how great of a leader Moses was, no matter how good of a guy that pastor was, it's bigger than that. There is great power in those who see their own stories as part of something greater. Moses knows he's going to die. This is, in fact, the fifth time that they talk about it. You will not enter the promised land. He knows. He knows. He knows it's coming. And yet, he spends his last breath blessing the people in his presence and praising God. Maybe Moses was not taking the journey just for himself. Maybe there was something different going on in that journey for Moses. Maybe it wasn't, I am the leader of this nation. Maybe it was, we are all God's people. And I've been gifted this opportunity to walk with them, to know them, to lead them, 
to speak of God to them. God has a mission, and that mission has a church. It's not the other way around. God doesn't have a church, and then that church goes on mission for whatever it thinks it wants. God has a mission, and that mission has a church. Because God has given us this profound gift. And we show up on Sundays and maybe things should be different or there should be more people or we didn't like this part or this part or this part and we have this, man, I didn't hear from God today. And we just have this disappointment in our hearts that maybe I'm just not working hard enough at this. Or maybe I'm just not thinking about this in the right way. Or maybe, maybe, maybe something else is going on here. And when we ground ourselves in that and think, well, maybe we need to find the right mission, then we've fallen because there is only one mission. It's God's mission. He doesn't have a mission for people. He has a people for the mission. So why bother being holy if we're denied what our what we worked our whole life to visualize, as was Moses, or if we face abuse at each turn, as did Paul? Think about these. Do we seek holiness even if we never get to enter into our reward, into our own promised land? What if this short life is all there is? What if, as the psalmist sings, you turn us back into dust and say, turn back into dust, you human beings? If there's no heaven, do we still seek to be holy just because our God is holy? Think of it this way. Is our holiness based on faith in God or what we can get out of the transaction? Was Moses faithful to those people in the desert because God was faithful to those people in the desert? Or was Moses faithful to those people in the desert because there was a promised land at the end? Because there was a reward coming for him? That shakes me. That hits my heart. Because I've never thought about being faithful to God because he's faithful to me. I've never thought about being holy because God is holy. I just always think, what's in it for me? What can I gain in this moment? What is my reward? To embrace holiness can be hopeless, where the future is not assured, where we may never get to set foot in the promised land, that we spend our, our lifetime walking toward. Regardless of the love we show our neighbors, our lives may still come to an end on top of a mountain looking toward a reward we may never experience, something that we wanted so badly to see someone transformed in our lives, to see our community and our world transformed, to see hearts changed for Christ. And it didn't happen. I worked so hard, God. I sacrificed so much of my life, God. We as a collection of believers struggle to be holy. We struggle to love the neighbor who may not deserve our love. We struggle for justice, not because of some final and eternal reward. We struggle to be holy, loving, and just because it is what defines our very humanity. 
What's in it for me? What if we practiced as Christians being holy for holiness' sake? What if we practiced patience and kindness and love? Because those are the things that our God has done for us already. Not because people deserve it. Not because they're lovable people. But because our God has given it to us already. We struggle regardless of outcome because we have no other choice. If we think being holy will yield the fruit in its season and prevent our leaves from withering for all to see, then we are sadly mistaken. One's holiness, one's chosenness can never be measured proportionally to our external riches. The fruit yielded and the unwithered leaves are the faith that is defined by our very struggle to be holy, to love unconditionally, to be just. We might say it like this, that faith itself is the fruit we bear on the journey. Because we were so faithful, we get this reward at the end. No, 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 no. The fruit itself is faith. The reward, what we bear, that's faith itself. Martin Luther King Jr. gave a speech in Memphis, Tennessee on April 3rd, 1968. And he was there to support striking sanitation workers. And this has become known as the mountaintop speech. And it wasn't a very long speech, but here was the conclusion to it. This is what Martin Luther King Jr. said. Well, I don't know what will happen now. We've got some difficult days ahead, but it doesn't matter with me now because I've been to the mountaintop and I don't mind. Like anyone, I would like to live a long life Longevity has its place, but I'm not concerned about that now. I just want to do God's will. And he's allowed me to go up to the mountain. And I've looked over and I've seen the promised land. I may not get there with you, but I want you to know tonight that we as a people will get to the promised land. And I'm happy tonight I'm not worried about anything. I'm not fearing any man. My eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord. He's assassinated the next day. He knew. He knew that sometimes we get to the mountaintop and we don't get to go to the place that God promised. But God in his faithfulness will show us. He didn't die disappointed. He died happy. Because God had showed him that the promise always comes true. It may not look the way that we think it looks, but it will happen. It's easy to read a passage like this and become distracted by the seemingly graceless way in which God treats Moses. And it's easy to spend a whole sermon trying to justify God's actions or explain how the ancients would have interpreted events like death to have divine meaning and purpose in them. But perhaps the deeper truth here is the nature of disappointment. That sometimes life 
Even the life of faith does not make much sense. Wonderful would-be parents are unable to conceive a child or lose a child during the pregnancy. Fervent prayers in the oncology ward seem to fall on deaf ears. The one who is right and true and colors within the lines finds herself standing atop Pisgah, so close to what she desires but is unable to touch it. And so it's never our work to assign meaning to others' dashed hopes and dreams or to command joy in the, faith, in the face of disappointment. But what we can do is look at the faith of Moses, perhaps best displayed not in the front of Pharaoh, but sitting alone with his God, watching the horizon of his life's work, feeling not resentment, not bitterness, not disappointment, but gratitude. That a man so far from his home was not feeling used, was not feeling abused, was not feeling like he had wasted his time, but was feeling grateful and thankful to a God who is always faithful. What we all need is some perspective on Pisgah to cling to the central claim of our faith that a grander story is being told. We can rejoice and give thanks for our place in that story in spite of disappointments that we find along the way. And so there's three places where disappointment can rob our gratitude. And the first way is that we focus on what is missing. In our disappointment, we focus on what we don't have. This is what leads to entitlement. This is what leads to disappointment and resentment and bitterness. We focus on what we don't have. When we experience disappointment, we often focus on what didn't meet our expectations or what went wrong. And this can lead us to overlook all of the positive aspects of a situation and fail to appreciate what we do have. And it requires a shift in perspective. It requires us to leave the valley, leave the valley of our disappointments and rise to the mountaintop of gratitude. To say, you know what, through this, I know that there have been some things left on the table. I know there were some things we could have done better for each other, for myself, for God, for the community. But man, look at all the things that were done. So we didn't make it 40 days in a year, or 40 years in a day. But we got 40 years out of it. That's pretty good. And so another thing that we do is disappointment has a comparison with ideal outcomes. Disappointment often arises when reality falls short of our idealized expectations. When we constantly compare our current situation to an idealized version of it, it becomes challenging to be grateful for what we actually have. And sometimes even those expectations are unrealistic. Like I think about my daughter who's three in these situations and I put food on her plate and then I hand her the plate and then sometimes she doesn't eat it all. Well, I say, well, I'm disappointed that you didn't eat all your dinner. But maybe my expectations of what I wanted her to eat were too big. Maybe I just gave her a random amount that was too much. And so when I think about the expectations I had on her, 
maybe they were a little bit unrealistic. When we constantly compare our current situation to an idealized version of it, it's very challenging to be grateful. And then when we set the bar too high, it becomes a challenge to be grateful for more attainable or realistic outcomes. And so that makes us reframe our expectations. That maybe we need to take a step back and say, were my expectations of this moment too high? Did I not speak through expectations a little bit more? What did I think was going to happen? What did they think was going to happen? How can I reframe this and say, maybe we can reach something better for all of us? And the last thing is that disappointment can rob us of gratitude because it brings about negative emotions. Disappointment can often trigger negative emotions like sadness, frustration, anger, entitlement, bitterness, resentment, jealousy. You see how it's the little spider web that goes out and it's the cause of all of these things. These emotions can cloud our perspective and make it difficult to see the silver lining or feel grateful for anything in the moment. So, we need to practice this mindfulness. Where are we grounded? Are we feeling negative things? Are we feeling the pressure of negative emotions? We need to practice being in the present moment and say, how can this be positive? In our day of instant gratification and convenience, many of us have forgotten the discipline of disappointment. Recognizing that disappointment is a natural part of life and using it as an opportunity for personal growth can help us find gratitude even in challenging situations. And so that's my encouragement for you this morning. That there is this discipline of disappointment. Are we rushing too quickly to the finish line? Are our expectations of what is supposed to happen too high? too needy, too big. How can we curb our negative feelings and practice being in the present? And it all comes from God. It comes from practicing that love and that faith that God has already shown us to be those people because he is that God.